Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Before we dive into today's episode, I have exciting news for you all. I am going to be doing a live podcast recording in front of an audience with Vitalik Buterin, the creator of Ethereum. It will be in New York City on March 20th, so save the date. I'll be posting a link on my website and in the show notes in the next week or so, so watch out and get your tickets early. Are you ready for global cryptocurrency money laundering regulations? CypherTrace secures the crypto economy with powerful AML tools for exchanges, crypto businesses, and regulators. My guest today is Taylor Monahan, the CEO of MyCrypto, who's here to talk about the Quadriga CX case. Welcome, Taylor. Thanks so much for having me. So before we dive in, I want to lay out the facts that are currently known so we have context. Gerald Cotton was the CEO of Canadian crypto exchange exchange Quadriga CX. Quadriga has said that he died on December 9th due to complications with Crohn's disease while he was in India to open an orphanage. The company says that he alone had the private keys for the exchange's cold storage, and so they cannot currently retrieve the funds for the 115,000 customers who have money on the exchange. That amount, they say, totals about 150 million U.S. dollars. Immediately, a number of crypto community members were suspicious about this story because the exchange in recent months has had troubles with its banking partner. And during that time, many customers reported difficulty withdrawing money. Also, I think people are skeptical of the idea that an exchange that size would only have one set of keys for cold storage and that only one person would have access to them. Most of the professional exchanges and especially large exchanges, uh, you know, of the size of Quadrigo would be using what's called multi-signature cold storage in which, for instance, any three of five keys could be put together to access the reserves. So if, say, one person dies and takes their keys with them, the other the others can still retrieve the funds in cold storage. And there are a few other facts that have made people suspicious. As Toronto's Globe and Mail put it, despite being disorganized and unprofessional in his handling of the exchange, he, quote, was diligent in other areas of his life. He signed a will on November 27th, less than two weeks before he died. He appointed his wife as the executor of his estate and outlined the distribution of his assets including an airplane, property in British Columbia, and Nova Scotia, and two pet chihuahuas named Nitro and Gully, along with $100,000 for their care. There are a lot of other rumors and theories that are being bandied about. Um, Some of them have to do with a co-founder, Michael Patron, 
who has a criminal past. And uh, another one has to do with the fact that apparently there's a, a thriving industry in fake death certificates in countries like India. But in the absence of details about some of those uh, later rumors, we can at least look at the blockchains, which is what Taylor has done. So Taylor, tell us what you investigated. Yeah, so one of the benefits of the blockchain is that whenever a transaction happens on chain, uh, it's public. And so you may not know um, who's sending it or who's receiving it because it's just an address, um, but you can see the transaction. And when you have large exchanges like Quadriga, you have, um, usually it's like common knowledge what their addresses that they commonly use are. Additionally, Quadriga had an issue last year where they accidentally locked up some funds in a contract and they made a public statement about that and stated some of the addresses that were involved. So I wanted to really like start with the facts. And so I started with those really known addresses that Quadriga themselves had said, this is our address. And I went from there. Um, and so basically, you can look through all the transaction history, uh, you can follow the money, um, you can detect patterns, you can see, you know, common addresses that they're sending to. Um, and most interestingly, you can really start to see the difference between um, when like a customer deposits funds into Quadriga and when Quadriga themselves is sending around money. And so that's what I was really diving into and and trying to see, you know, is there cold storage? Is there a pile of money like the the court documents say there is? And in my research, I have found no no pile of money sitting anywhere cold or hot. Wow. And so so just to understand, you named or you said that you used some addresses that were publicly known. What are the chances that there would be additional ones that maybe do connect to cold storage that you just don't know about. So that's always a possibility. And that's why like even today, I'm still just diving deep into the transaction history and trying to find any, you know, any place where money is sent, et cetera. One of the interesting things about Quadrica is that they really um, use these three addresses uh, and only these three addresses for like their primary holdings. You know, with some other exchanges that I've I've looked into, you'll see maybe hundreds or thousands of addresses that they use for sort of like hot or warm storage. In this case, they really limit the amount of addresses that they're using. And then they also really like to send even amounts when they're sending manually. So to elaborate on this, when an exchange automates things, they'll often like the the code will just say send all the money from one place to another and you'll often see a large amount of decimals uh, because it's all automatic and it's whatever's in the account and there's gas fees and stuff like that. Uh, but when Quadrica sends manually, when there's actually like a person, um, those are always like very even numbers. And so if we look at, you know, the largest outgoing transactions, the largest incoming transactions, you can see that these are back and forth from their own accounts uh, consistently from 2016 all the way through 2018. Wow. So I don't know if I fully understand what you're saying. Um, are you saying that Quadriga didn't use any automated uh, mechanisms to move money and it seemed to all be manual? So when a 
customer deposited funds, they have like their own little personal address that Quadrica gives them. And then that process of moving from the customer's personal address to the Quadrica hot wallet is automated. But when Quadrica themselves is moving money from one of their hot wallets to another hot wallet or to another Quadrica controlled address, um, those amounts are like 5,000 ETH, 3,000 ETH, 2,000 ETH, 500 ETH, um, numbers like that. So, you know, and we're seeing this pattern just everywhere. Okay. And so what you're saying is they didn't have any software that was doing that. It seemed to always be a person, at least as far as you can tell, it looks like. Right, exactly. And then the other, you know, interesting thing about this is if there were cold storage or even any storage account with significant amount of money in it, you would expect this to show up at some point. So we see them moving 5,000 ETH from one hot wallet to another hot wallet. We see them moving 2,000 ETH from that hot wallet to uh, a Bitfinex deposit address. But you know, we don't have any address that like just held money like you would expect for an exchange of this size uh, who's utilizing cold storage for their reserves. And so tell me what that normally looks like when you're looking at the blockchain movements for an exchange that does have cold storage. Typically, does that mean, and or or just actually another way to ask it is to break out what are the differences in the way that a cold storage wallet looks versus like uh, warm versus hot? Right. So a hot wallet usually has like hundreds of thousands of transactions. And that's what we're seeing here. And these are incoming transactions from customers uh, who are depositing money onto the exchange and then outgoing transactions for customers who are withdrawing their money from the exchange. And then you'll see typically like an occasional movement of like a large amount from the hot wallet to the cold wallet. Uh, And then the cold wallet, when you look at that address, you would see usually maybe 10, 20, 30, something like that, incoming transactions of a significant amount. And then you would not see a lot of activity on the outgoing because it's just the reserves and you only need to access those reserves when your hot wallet is depleted. So just to clarify a little bit, the hot wallet may, let's say the hot wallet gets to 10,000 Ether uh, and they say, oh, that's a lot. Let's make sure that this is secure. They send 5,000 Ether to the cold wallet. The cold wallet would then have like an incoming transaction of 5,000, maybe a week later, an incoming transaction of 1,000, a week later, an incoming transaction of 2,000. And then perhaps when the market was going down and they need to re-up their uh, hot wallet, you would see a single outgoing transaction for 2,000, 3,000, 5,000. But you would not ever see uh, a large number of transactions because in theory, the cold wallet should be very hard to access and it should take a lot of work because uh, you would need to move it, you know, either via an air-gapped machine and manually signing or, you know, another mechanism that's that's highly secure. We're going to keep discussing the details of the Quadriga case and also talk about what this means for the average crypto user. But first, a quick word from our fabulous sponsors. Ready or not, the Financial Action Task Force anti-money laundering recommendations soon go into effect globally. If you handle cryptocurrencies, no matter where you do business, these new AML laws will apply to you. 
CypherTrace helps exchanges, ICOs, funds, brokerages, and regulators understand and manage crypto asset and compliance risks. Learn how to reduce your exposure and prepare now for tough new regulations. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. Learn more at cyphertrace.com slash unconfirmed. Back to my conversation with Taylor Monahan of MyCrypto. So you also mentioned earlier warm storage. What is that? So warm storage is a wallet that's not really actively being used in the day-to-day of the exchange. So it may not uh, be where customer funds are swapped to, but it's not stored in like a super secure offline way. So in these sorts of storages, you may see like more transactions. It may be used to like send money to another exchange. It may be used to uh, like pay contractors that they have on payroll, um, things like that. So hot wallets have tons of transactions, tons of user deposits, tons of user withdrawals. Warm is not really actively being used, but not cold, meaning not kept offline. And then cold is the super, super secure offline, very rarely used. Yeah, like to to create an analog, you know, just against somebody's personal finances, it would be like the hot wallet is sort of like your checking account, the warm is maybe your savings account, and then the cold storage is similar to like what you have in a bank vault or, you know, investments that are illiquid or just something sort of like that, I guess. So in terms of what you have seen, so if you haven't seen, you know, evidence of there being any cold storage... Where have the Quadri- Quadriga funds been, or where has Quadriga been moving the funds that are in its possession? So the primary movement, as you would expect with any exchange, is between Quadriga and their customers. So you have like literally hundreds of thousands of smaller transactions that are either coming from their customers or going to their customers as their customers withdraw. Now, aside from those, we're seeing a lot of Ether be moved to other centralized exchanges, um, primarily Shapeshift, Bitfinex, and Poloniex are the the sort of top three places that this money is moved to. And what is that? Like, why would an exchange be moving funds to another exchange? That is an excellent question. So... Yeah, it's hard. So one example of why like an exchange may need to utilize another exchange um, would be uh, like an exchange like Poloniex, who doesn't deal with fiat currency whatsoever. But Poloniex, for its day-to-day operations, needs to pay its employees, needs to pay the server bills, needs to do all these things that happen in the real world and require fiat. So in that case, uh, Poloniex probably at some point moved some of its money to another exchange in order to uh, obtain fiat to pay the bills. Now, for a really large exchange like Poloniex, you probably wouldn't see this um, happening like publicly or or to like an exchange deposit address. You would more likely like they would more likely have a relationship with another exchange or an OTC desk where they could. Um, you know, exit to fiat whenever they wanted. However, you know, when I'm looking at the Quadrica stuff, it's it's a significant amount of money and, and far more than one would ever need for day-to-day operations. 
Um, and then obviously, since they're moving to Poloniex, which doesn't deal with fiat, uh, that that theory doesn't hold much water, unfortunately. And when you say significant amount, do you have a percentage? Um, I don't have a percentage. It's it's hard to like you know tally it all up because <laughs> yeah, there's so many transactions. Um, but like just quickly looking, like this Poloniex uh, deposit address has. Uh, received 218,000 Ether, which had an equivalent balance at the time of 7.7 million. Um, All of the shapeshift stuff is actually quite uh, terrifying. Let me grab this. So the shapeshift numbers so far we're seeing as 321,000 Ether with a total equivalent value at the time of transaction of nearly 20 million US dollars. Oh, wow. yeah, so it's when I say significant, like it's it's um it's a lot. Yeah. I mean just that alone, you know, at the beginning I said that they're saying that they owe people about 150 million, but right now you've already seen that 27 million has just moved to these two exchanges. One thing is in your tweet storm, you noted that the movements to shapeshift were unusual. Why why is that? So, you know, just like I said, I don't really have any idea why they would ever move this money to an exchange. Utilizing Shapeshift is even weirder or or like I really cannot understand why they would ever do this. And the reason is Shapeshift is primarily for fast, easy transactions. Um, they have limits on the maximum value of each individual transaction and they their rates are not competitive with the market because you're valuing speed and ease of use over like, you know, a full exchange experience. So for an exchange that is liquid and has heaps of customers trading, you know, if if Quadrica wanted to uh, swap their Ether into Bitcoin, which is what they were doing via Shapeshift, I just, Shapeshift is not the place to do it. They could use their own exchange. They could use another exchange. But the amount that they spent in fees and just the higher spread that's found on Shapeshift, it really, it just defies logic. Wow. Okay. Well, hopefully, um, just what you're telling me just makes me so nervous for the customers. Um, Hopefully, this will have a better ending than, than it looks like at the moment. One other thing that I wanted to ask you about was in your tweet storm, you mentioned that Quadrigo, of course, because it's an exchange, had know your customer policies, and you made a point about the significance of that. So what? why do you think that's important? So for those that don't know, uh, know your customer is like a regulatory thing. It's very international. And if you're dealing with an exchange that follows regulations, they basically have to collect information from you. Uh, usually this is like your name, your date of birth, uh, your identification. So like your passport or a government issued ID. Um, they'll usually try to like make you take a selfie with that ID so that it can't be just like a random passport you found on Google Images or something. And because Quadriga has KYC for their customers, the owners of Quadriga have a database somewhere with all of this information in it. So I'm not saying that they did this, but if they really wanted to to move money around on exchanges, they could open any number of accounts using their own users' data. And and the exchange that they open the account on would probably like, you know, they, they'd have no way to differentiate it between 
any any legitimate customer. Wow. So this just takes me back to kind of this, um, I don't even know if you would call it a philosophical debate, but as we've seen, there are businesses in the space that have taken different approaches when it comes to trust and centralization. And, you know, very obviously there's kind of the typical startup uh, or like an enterprise company that wants to use this technology and they just go with a traditional business model where the customers do, you know, essentially trust them. And um, then of course there's all the decentralized versions and um, your company is a great example of that. There's a number of new decentralized exchanges that are coming out, but they're mainly just really tiny, especially in terms of volume. But I think what's been fascinating to me is that one question that I have posed to multiple guests, and this is something I just turn over in my mind all the time, is that by and large, as we've seen like in the current version of the internet, a lot of people are happy to kind of like sign away their privacy rights and just let, you know, companies kind of um, do whatever they will uh, with their data as long as, you know, the customer is happy with the service. And, and I myself, I know that uh, for instance, a part of me is just like, oh man, like manage my own private keys. Like that, that's such a burden and a responsibility that I don't have time for. And, um, but you know, I feel like this is a great example. Uh, you know, of course we don't know all the facts and it may turn out that, you know, there really is cold storage and there are assets to, to, um, to be able to retrieve for, for customers, you know, we don't, we don't know everything yet, but uh, just from what you're telling me, from what you've seen on the blockchain, um, I definitely feel like uh, there, this whole narrative around like whether or not you can trust businesses or, or whatever is maybe being turned on its head. So what, what's kind of your takeaway for everyday crypto users when you look at what's going on here? Uh, there's a lot. So for like an individual user, I think we need to, you know, stay, very aware of the fact that this ecosystem is young and the people running companies are not necessarily the most mature. And when making a choice of who to trust, people need to be just, you know, I would say paranoid. Like we should be more paranoid about who we trust with our data, who we trust with our funds, um, and and be hyper aware of the fact that as as history has shown, <laughs> bad things do and can happen. Um, and one of the sort of values of the blockchain is that you can be in control of your own funds and your own data. And, and so we should, I don't know, I, I understand that people want to do whatever is easiest, but that can be quite detrimental in this, in this sort of emerging space. Yes. Um, well, so we will, we will see what, what transpires I think, of course, the remaining questions are, you know, can we find cold storage? Um, it turns out that in a previous interview with Coindesk, Cotton had said that the exchange was using multi-signature uh, wallets. So, you know, that's also a question, you know, what really was uh, the process that they were using to secure their funds? And then as far as I understand, I think the company has 30 days to try to recover the missing uh, reserves. And um, I think Gerald Cotton's widow, Jennifer Robertson, is um, working with some people on that. And um, yeah, there's this story is definitely, <laughs> it remains to be seen how it will, how it will um, unfold. 
But anyway, well, thank you so much, Taylor. Are, are you going to be doing anything next to sort of track this? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm still like looking in the addresses. I'm honestly like, I'm, I'm like, I want to just like open my spreadsheet and see a random transaction and click it and be like, oh, there's the 400,000 missing ether that they mentioned. <laughs> um, I would love that because, you know, anytime there's, um, something like this happens in the space, it's obviously, it harms the reputation of cryptocurrencies. It harms individual users. It harms potential businesses that are, you know, trying to gain trust. It, it's it's never a good thing. Um, so we'll see. I'm yeah, yeah. I I reached out to Bitfury before the show, and I know their Crystal Analytics team. Uh, they rolled out a new feature that allows for the long-term automated monitoring of addresses. And they're actually using it now to observe the addresses that are thought to belong to Quadriga. So um, they said that then they'll instantly know if those addresses move any funds. And um, so we'll see. Yeah. And I, I, um, one of the more interesting things as I was doing this research is most of the stuff that I learned could have been learned 200, 300, 400 days ago. So if someone was doing the exact same research I'm doing right now, a year ago, they probably would have been able to tell very quickly that there's no like huge pile of ether reserves anywhere. Um, and I think that that's something that we should perhaps dive into deeper as a community and figure out how can we you know, what What can we do to hold exchanges more accountable before, um, you know, they their founder dies or uh, they are completely insolvent or they get hacked or whatever? Because, like I said, like this could have been detected at least a year ago. Yeah, I did see Blockstream announced uh, something about using proof of reserves. And I think that they forget what it was. It's like some open source tool, I think, for for doing that for exchanges. But yeah, having something like that in place for all kinds of assets, I think would be smart. And I actually just did want to state one thing, which is earlier in the show when I talked about how there were all these rumors flying around about how India has this industry and fake death certificates. Um, Coindesk did report on Thursday that the city uh, in which he died did release more details about his death. Um, you know, they had released his death certificate as well, uh, but they have more details about like, you know, when he came in to the hospital, what happened while he was there and then how he uh, had cardiac arrest, uh, arrest the next morning. So I will link to that in the show notes so people can read but until then, um, until until this is all resolved, I guess we'll <laughs> we'll just take the blockchain right now and and see um, you know what we can find out from there. But anyway, thank you so much, Taylor. It's been great having you on Unconfirmed. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. New episodes of Unconfirmed come out every Friday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Raylene Gallipoli, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Nuss. Thanks for listening.